Let's go ahead and begin today. Um, we'll pick back up in the book of Second Timothy. We will be actually starting in chapter four this time. We got into it a little bit last week, uh, but this is our this is our final chapter in the first and second Timothy saga. So uh, it's been longer than I think was anticipated, but I hope it's been somewhat helpful and edifying to you. And uh, again, I've, I've said it before, and I think all of the other men that have been up here would agree and testify to this, but we appreciate the opportunity. Um, in some ways, it's as much a ministry to us as it is to you. I hope, hopefully, you know, you understand that, that um, for many of us, this is our really only experience teaching. So we appreciate the grace that you've shown us, and hopefully it can continue to go well and, and we can continue to teach in future um, future weeks. So again, we're picking up in chapter 4, and if, you, if you've got your Bibles open, we really left off in the middle of verse 2 last time after we talked about reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Just by way of review, um, I want to kind of look at what we talked, la- talked about last week and tie it into this week, but does anybody remember one thing from last week that we talked about that... Um, we're talking about scripture and how important it was and this breathed out by God. Yeah. And how that that's how soul scripture would tie in. Absolutely. That famous verse that I think uh, is on a poster in our Sunday school classroom, maybe more than one, that, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for sorry, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We talked about the idea of sola scriptura. So, Chris, you mentioned it. What, what is sola scriptura for the group? I mean, in a nutshell. You know, it's a, it's, it was one of the five uh, basic tenets for the Reformation. You had sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola um, Christus, sola fide, and sola deo gloria. Mm-hmm. And that, that was by faith alone, through Christ alone. It was scripture alone. The glory of God alone. Grace alone. alone. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly, we're looking at that idea of Scripture alone being the sole rule of faith and the final authority on issues of faith and morals, right? Um, So, just to kind of quickly summarize this point, you know, I get, I'm, I'm, I'm taking this from what is said in verse 17 of chapter three that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, not just. 90% 90% of the good works that are out there for us to do, but every good work. And the scripture is where we get that, that completeness, if you will. Um, that I, I, I want to clarify again, that does not mean that every conclusion that we come to in life we can find in scripture. Scripture guides us in the decisions that we make. Uh, but if I'm, you know, let's take a real life example of somebody that we're dealing with now, like the O'Briens, deciding where they should be missionaries. They were going to go to Norway, and now they're considering Appalachia. And the Bible doesn't specifically say, you know, the O'Brien should go to Appalachia and be missionaries, but we use the Bible as our guide and as our rule of faith for how they ought to conduct themselves and what types of things they ought to consider. You know, it's very appropriate for us to pray for them, pray with them, uh, and they may have some indecisiveness at times, but the Bible is still our rule of faith. Juxtapose that to, you know, a different authority where we actually have an external set of rules or impositions that are laid on us as opposed to that or those that come from the Word of God themselves. So, you know, it, it may be an easy one to pick on is the, um, maybe the Marian dogmas, if you think about Catholicism, right? The idea that you must believe that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. That just means she never died. And the idea is that she never sinned. Wages of sin is death, so she never, she never experienced death. She was like Enoch. She was taken up into heaven. Well, we don't believe that because the Scripture doesn't teach that. And even a well-to-do 
Catholic apologists would not say that the scripture teaches that. That comes from an external source of authority. And so that's what I mean when I say sola scriptura, right? That we have enough to believe everything that God has willed for us to believe in the scriptures. We don't need an external authority that comes in and then later says, these are also teachings that you must believe according to tradition. And I think that 1 Timothy 3, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 17 makes that case. We also talked about the sufficiency of scripture, and that would just mean that we're not looking for additional revelation from God. So what scripture has to say is all we need for life and godliness. Uh, we're not necessarily looking for an extra word or vision from God, which seems to be very common and popular in today's Christian circles. Um, I had a quote last week, and I forgot to read it, and it was from John Owen. And when you have a John Owen quote, you can't leave it out. So I wanted, I wanted to give it this week, but many of you are familiar with John Owen as the professor at Oxford in the 1600s. But he once said that if Private revelation, that is, you know, a word from God, you know, God told me this, God told me that. If private revelation agrees with Scripture, it is needless, and if it disagrees, it is false, right? And I think that's well said. The idea is that if God told you something that was already conducive with what the Scripture teaches, we really didn't need it. And if it contradicts what the Scripture teaches, then it wasn't needed in the first place because it's wrong, right? So uh, that, that, I think, is a good way to summarize what I'm talking about and what I think Paul is saying to Timothy as a pastor you have everything you need for uh, to do every good work. You're complete and equipped for every good work through Scripture. And then, he, and then he charges Timothy, and that's where we got into the job description of a pastor. So if you go back to verse 17, verse just a second, that man of God there I do think refers to man of God in almost an ecclesiastical sense. So that is to say he's talking about a pastor here, a leader of a church. I do not think that it means it only applies to a pastor. Otherwise, I wouldn't have just spent the last five minutes talking about why it's important in our lives. But... I do think he is charging Timothy as a pastor as to how he ought to view his ministry and his job description. And he launches into that in chapter 4 when he charges Timothy in the presence of God who will judge him. We talked a little bit about that last week, how that uh, implies some level of seriousness that, that he's carrying when he's saying this. He's saying you know, that you're going to be judged by God for what you're doing. So take this seriously. But then he says what? He says, preach the word, uh, be ready in season and out of season. So Timothy's sole responsibility, I would contend, as a pastor, is to preach the word, uh, is to bring people back to God's revealed message to his people. And, and it says, be ready in season and out of season. We talked a little bit about that last week. Whatever that means, it means all the time, right? You can only be in season or out of season. There's no in-between. So Paul's charging Timothy to always be ready to be, preach the word. I, I believe that he is kind of referencing there this idea that sometimes it's going to be easy and sometimes it's going to feel good. I'm sure any pastor can testify to uh, the reality that there are times when it's very encouraging to see people come along in the faith, grow in their understanding of the Lord, and being a pastor is, for lack of a better word, fun, right? But I'm sure any pastor who takes his job seriously can also testify to the discouragements and the times when it's not so convenient and or comfortable to say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done. And I think Paul is charging Timothy here. Keep in mind, the context is all about this coming persecution. You know, if you go all the way back to chapter 3, he's warning Timothy about the things that will come and the dangerous times, the, the you know, evil people that are coming uh, that lie ahead. And he's telling him, you know, that's going to happen. That's going to, he's going to be out of season at some point, but be ready to preach the word. Um, don't compromise on that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. So with... With that in mind, kind of a review of what we talked about last week. Oh, and then, and then we talked about reproving and rebuking and exhorting. <coughs> this idea that it is the job description of a pastor to actually use the Word of God to 
convict us at times, and that that should be something that we feel. Uh, I challenged you last week to think about when the last time you sat under the teaching here and did you know and, and felt conviction. Uh, now, this isn't to say that we should come to church you know to beat up on ourselves, but there ought to be some level of of exhortation in the preaching that goes on to where we look back and reflect on our lives and say, I can I can improve in this area. Uh, if that's not happening, then it may be that you're not taking the teaching or the proclamation of God's word seriously enough. You know, we just went through a couple of weeks where we talked about discipleship and Bible reading and prayer. And, and you know, I, I know for myself, there's always conviction there and you know, always need to be better in those departments. So, you know, keep that in mind if you're simply leaving church uh, or the corporate gathering of church and God's people on Sunday, feeling no conviction, no desire to grow in godliness, then uh, perhaps you are not taking the responsibility to listen to the pastor seriously, right? Um, but we talked about the way in which this is this is some some way we can pray for our pastors too. You know, how do we pray for them? We look at these descriptions, these characteristics that pastors are to have, and pray that our pastors have that as well. Um, so let, let's go into next or this week's teaching where we're going to get into that idea of complete patience and teaching. So we talked about reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, but then Paul says, do it with complete patience and teaching. Just to set the stage, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 8 here today. Uh, Hopefully we can get through most, if not all, of that. But I'm going to start in verse 1, read through verse 8, and then we'll discuss it. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So as is customary here, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, Just anything that stuck out to you doesn't necessarily have to pertain to what I'm going to talk about, but just as we read that, uh, what grabbed your attention? Go ahead, Bennett. Uh, Verse 3, the time is coming when... People will not endure sound or truth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if our time, the times that we live in, can't be described like that. Because, I mean, if you read uh, Jeremiah's book, I mean, when Jeremiah was warning the people, there were others who were telling them, Oh, peace, peace. You know, nothing will happen. Mm-hmm. And then Jeremiah kept warning them, You go into captivity. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they did. For those who listen to unsound doctrine, this very so it's a clear warning for us. Sure. Yeah, it sounds very similar to the opening of chapter three, right? Understand this: that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people who are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, the whole list, right? Um, you know, he's warning them um, that this is going to happen, and. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that's connected, I think, to the responsibility to, to teach sound doctrine, right? But, but absolutely, and, and also in the United States, it's probably easier to do kind of what people were doing in Jeremiah's day, which is say, peace, peace, because we've, we've had it so good for so long. You know, it's like, yeah, we're getting away with it, right? But there will come a day of reckoning. What else? Anything else? 
Any of the youth in the back? You guys have any observations or comments? Just, just trying to stir the pot a little bit. That's it. Okay. Uh, let's continue on then here. And like I said, we're going to start by looking at the importance of patience and teaching uh, in the pastoral ministry. So when you examine verse 2 and it tells us that the pastor should preach the word in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, it then goes on to say that he should do it with complete patience and teaching. And it's reminiscent of uh, 1 Peter 3.15 where it tells us that you know, in your hearts honor the Lord Christ as holy, but be prepared for anyone who asks to give a reason for the hope that is in you. But what's next? Anybody do this with gentleness and respect, right? So this idea that we are to be able to use the Word of God to sharpen the minds and the hearts of those listening, but we do it with gentleness and respect. Um, and I think this brings back to mind, I talked a little bit about this last week, but the image of a shepherd, right? We talk about a pastor as a shepherd a lot. Uh, when you think about a shepherd, a shepherd is not domineering, or at least a good shepherd is not domineering, just beating his sheep with his club and his rod, right? He has, a, he has an end goal a motivation behind all of what he's doing, and that is to get his sheep to their destination, well-fed, nourished, taken care of along the way, ward off any dangers or threats. And so, yes, there are times when a pastor has to be stern or a shepherd has to be stern with his sheep to keep them in line. But at the end of the day, his, his main motivation is not to be some domineering, uh, berating voice in their lives. It's to get them to where they're supposed to go in a safe fashion, right? And so, too, a pastor should look at his congregation as sheep that are uh, on, on their way to the promised land, right? And his, his responsibility is to shepherd them and make sure that they don't go astray and that the dangers that are out there don't enter into the flock. And so there needs to be a level of gentleness there for that reason. Um, maybe you guys have seen pastoring or teaching that uh, ignores this reality. It seems that we tend to experience more of the air on the other side of the road uh, here in this department where there's no reproving, rebuking, exhortation. It's all... You know the sermons that we hear today, in, in large part, are all niceties and encouragement and life tips, right? And at the same time, it's true that you probably have experienced a time or two where you, you've seen a pastor that just gets up and just starts, you know, yelling at, at at the church. Usually, usually it's that the church is kind of in agreement with the pastor, and they're yelling at the world and telling them how stupid everybody is. And how I, I came across this one clip that almost made me laugh about how anybody who grows a beard is just evil, and you know, this this if you got facial hair, you need to. And I mean, he was just yelling. And if you want a good laugh after church, go home and type up our beards apostolic on YouTube and you'll get a nice 38 second clip. But, you know, we've seen that type of preaching where it's, it kind of ignores this gentleness command. It's just, you know, it's over the top. Maybe the, you know, the Hillsborough Baptist type of, you know, holding the picket signs up that God hates homosexuals and type, and it doesn't usually say homosexuals. But the point I'm making is obviously we, we do want to reprove and repute people, but there has to be with it this balance and we have to be gentle and, and kind. If for no other reason, the pastor has to abide in this because he himself is a sinner, right? And, and Pastor Tim has said that many times that, you know, I'm a sinner like the rest of you. Um, it would be hypocritical to stand up here and convict people in a way that is uh, simply shaming them and browbeating them while at the same time recognizing that he's fallen short of God's standard as well, right? So uh, if for no other reason, it would be necessary to be gentle and kind and patient with people on account of the fact that, uh, he himself requires that same level of grace and patience in his own life. But it also says to do, uh, to do his job, to, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and with teaching. And I, again, I think this is really important. It sounds obvious. I mean, it really, it almost shouldn't have to be said that a pastor should teach. And yet, in much of today's 
world, teaching is relegated to, you know, maybe something lower on the priority list. Pastors are responsible to uh, be the head of humanitarian efforts or outreach projects. They're charged with being the CEO of a large nonprofit organization that they call the church. Um, they're in charge of managing staff, hiring and firing. But the teaching element of it is, if it's there, minimal and um, really not the main focus of the job. And I think that it ought to be. Um, and just speaking uh, from personal experience and giving you some type of kind of anecdotal story here, uh, so many of you know a little bit about my background, but just in case you don't, basically, uh, I'll take you back to college. I was introduced to a preacher by the name, and this is going to be a little bit long-winded, but bear with me. I'm going to bring it back to the point of the text here. I introduced to a preacher by the name of Francis Chan. And some of you know Francis Chan. And just as a disclosure here, I would, or disclaimer, I would, he said some things, done some things in recent years that are questionable at best. So I'm not encouraging you to go home and look up Francis Chan. But for the sake of the story, this is what happened. I, I was you know, introduced to this Francis Chan fellow, and I very much appreciated and admired his teaching. Um, and I was to the point where I would literally go in my room and I would binge watch sermons by Francis Chan. I had a semester in college where I, we had no TV access at all. This was before streaming days, so it was just, you know, I could get on YouTube and I could type in Sermon by Francis Chan and I would watch one and then there would be another one and I would watch another one. And if you know anything about YouTube, you know that, you know, when you type watch one video, it recommends another one, right, that you should watch. And also, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Francis Chan, he was a graduate of the Master Seminary, which is where John MacArthur is the, is the head. I don't know if he still is or not, but he was anyway. And so every once in a while, I'd get this recommendation to watch a video from John MacArthur, right? And I'd click on it, maybe, you know, short clip, whatnot. And I had nothing bad to say about him. I mean, he seemed fine to me, but he wasn't exactly Francis Chan. He didn't have the charisma or the stage presence. And so I would typically just ignore those videos and go to the next Francis Chan. And uh, it wasn't until a couple years later when I started dating Amber, who many of you know, if you don't, she was practicing Roman Catholic at the time we began dating. I was attending a church that I would categorize as more seeker-sensitive, consumer-driven model of church. And I needed answers. You know, I needed answers to the, the question of what's the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism. I consulted two pastors locally, um, sat down with them face-to-face -to, -face to ask them about, you know, what I should be considering with respect to the idea that I was dating a, a Roman Catholic. And basically, I mean, in summary and for lack of time, they said, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like, just don't worry about it. Um, does she love Jesus? We're all Christians, you know, it's, or I'm not really sure. I don't have the answers to everything, but um, nothing to be worried about. And, uh, you know, I, by the providence of God's spirit in my life, I felt like that wasn't a good enough answer. But I remembered this one guy that, you know, I used to see on the Internet from time to time who, you know, talked about that issue. And most people will touch it. But, you know, here I was in a situation where if I didn't have answers, I don't I don't know what would have happened. Um, so I needed some, I needed the truth. I needed teaching. And who did I go to when I needed teaching? That guy that was, you know, teaching John MacArthur, you know, from years ago. And so I'm just using that story to emphasize the significance of teaching. You know, I, it wasn't even in the moment that I first heard him that he had an impact, but it was years later when I needed it the most that the teaching was so important. You know, the truth was so important. And, um, I'm very grateful for, for men like him. And I never want to put him on a pedestal, but, I'm sure we all have experiences where we have people in our lives that have had impacts at the time when we're the most in need and you, you kind of feel forever indebted and grateful. I mean, he doesn't know who I am. He never, wouldn't know me from Adam. But, but then, And then I would compliment 
Trinity Baptist too, because once, you know, in God's providence, we were led to Trinity Baptist shortly after that experience. And, um, it was able to sit down with the pastor that did answer those questions, you know, and, and we did have breakfast and, and you guys were also welcoming and whatnot. So, um, and, and he, you know, did it with gentleness. It wasn't, it wasn't like, let's go on a tyrant against those who you're, you know, the, the Catholic church, but, but he was willing to answer the questions. And so, you know, again, we want to be, we want to recognize the significance of teaching in the pastoral ministry and, and the impact it has. I, I don't know where I would be were it not for men we're willing to not neglect the duty to teach. Um, I don't know where Amber would be. I don't know that Charlotte and Marshall would even be here. You know, so we appreciate that. And just as a testimony to the impact teaching has, um, you know, we, we have to take that seriously. And I think our pastor does, but, but that's important. And so um, the duty of the pastor is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, but it's also to be patient and to teach. And, and said another way, I think teaching is simply showing your work. If you remember in, um, you know, grade school or, or middle school when you knew the answer to the problem, but the teacher made you show your work, like, you know, 420 divided by 10 is 42, but you still got to do the long division and show how you got there. I mean, that's basically what I think we're called to do as evangelists and as pastors. Um, and, and I say evangelists and pastors because down in verse five, if you, if you take a look there, uh, it says, do the work of an evangelist. And so, yes, this is addressed to pastors, but I hope that all of you desire to be evangelists and share the good news with others. And so really this, this does pertain to us. Uh, in some way, we need to be patient and we need to teach. We need to be able to show our work um, in the sense that when somebody asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us, we can we can give an answer, you know, as opposed to simply saying, well, I don't know, that's the way I was raised and it's what I've always believed. Uh, we have a response that is creditable and, um, and can be taken seriously. And so I think this is part of the responsibility of a pastor. Secondly, uh, let's look at the need for preaching uh, in our in our society, as the alternative to false teaching, we'll call it false teaching. It's really the the alternative or or the the means that God uses to keep people anchored to the truth. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the acronym fanboys, F A N B O Y S, right? For and nor, but or yet so. And I just brought up the way in which we should recognize those words in Scripture. Uh, when we have one of those words, it's important to look at it, analyze what two ideas is it connecting. We've got one of those words here in verse 3. So we just finished up verse 2, and then it says 4. So let me read verse 2 to get the context again, and, and I'll read through verse 3. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for or because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Okay, so Paul says, Timothy, here's the reason that you need to do what you're doing. Here's the reason why you need to teach, preach the word in season and out of season. And by the way, I didn't mention this, but that word preach in verse 2 is different than teach. Um, it's to, to proclaim, to herald. So there is a difference between preaching and teaching. You know, and mainly what I'm doing right now is just teaching. Uh, but, you know, there's a sense in which all of us are proclaiming the, the message of Christ, not just merely stating facts. You know, that won't convict the sinner's soul, you know, just to tell them that Jesus was real, he rose from the dead. Uh, that, that can turn into nothing more than an academic debate. But to preach the word is to, 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 to herald it. That's, that's the, really the translation there, or to proclaim it, to, you know, go tell it on the mountain that, you know, Jesus Christ has come. That's the idea. And so I just wanted to make a point of that, that he is talking to preachers, and there is a difference between just merely stating 
the fact that Jesus was a real person and that he died on the cross and preaching it as if it is it, it, what, what you believe about this matters, right? This isn't uh, an argument that's akin to who the best football team is. This is a, a real important issue, and it pulls on your heartstrings. It causes people to become convicted. So back to the point here about why that's important. Uh, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Again, if you look at that word for and kind of substitute the word because, it's almost as if Paul is saying here, the reason that we need sound teachers is because if we don't have them, this is all else, the only other thing that's out there. So in my real example of where I would have ended up, who knows? I mean, maybe we would have been in a position where we would have found teaching that would have suited basically what we wanted to hear in the flesh, and we would have had no alternative were it not for the sound teachers that remain faithful to the charge to teach. And so the reason we need sound teaching uh, is so that people, God's sheep, that you know, the ones that the pastor is called to shepherd, have a place to go and are not like the women in chapter 3 who are led astray by various passions. Notice the similarities in verse 3 of chapter 4 and verse 5 of chapter, I'm sorry, verse 6 of chapter 3. Um, you know, those women, those weak women, they were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And look at verse 3 of chapter 4. Uh, people having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And then those women in chapter 3 were led astray by these false teachers. They were always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And look at verse 4 in chapter 4. These people will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, right? These are the people that are characterized in, in Ephesians as tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine, right? They don't have a solid foundation. They don't have a shepherd. They don't have somebody who is leading them in, in a buttress of the truth. And so they're tossed around because they never really arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Uh, and we see that today, especially I think a lot of times it does happen because people are first involved in churches, or I'll use that term loosely, Christian circles that don't take preaching the Word of God seriously. And then in 10, 15, 20 years, where are they? You know, where have they gone? They've, they've gone astray, followed myths. More importantly, and it's more evident this way, I think, where are their kids, right? And after 20 years of sitting uh, in, in a church that really didn't take seriously the charge to preach the Word of God, uh, where do the kids go when they leave the nest? They, they, this was all about a waste of my time, right? And so I think we have to take that charge seriously to reprove, rebuke, exhort, do it with patience, do it with teaching. But if we don't, um, you know, the time is coming, and the time may be coming for your own children, your own grandchildren, when they will turn, not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. So I've said a lot without giving anybody a chance to interject or comment. So thoughts or, or questions to this point um, and what we've studied? When I see um, verse 3 there, I think of Bodie Bachman did a, a sermon once, and he said, with the pandemic and then everything went online and everyone could do church online, mm -hmm. he said, you have a tendency to just go this church to this church to this church and it's the ones that it's an itching ear. Mm -hmm. It's satisfying mm -hmm. that itching ear, which is a temporary thing. If you think about it, your ear itches, you mm -hmm. scratch it, it's done and over. With. Yeah. Where sound doctrine, you walk out of church and you walk out of church, you didn't just finish watching it online, but mm -hmm. you walk out feeling like you're convicted, you're 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 still meditating on that I mm -hmm. think that's an idea of the Lord's day. Mm -hmm. We you listen, you worship, you hear the word of God preached, 
and then you spend the rest of the day meditating on that. That's not an engineer. Mm -hmm. But Bodie Bachman said you go from an internet service to an internet service and you'll search and find the ones that you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's not the ones that, that you're supposed to be watching. Yeah. Yeah. And to, to confess that is true. When you come to church here, sometimes uh, Pastor Tim will be talking about something and I'm like, I don't want to really hear that because I know that I'm going to be convicted, right? Or if I'm, you know, online, I'm just not going to look that topic up and I won't have to deal with it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Bennett. Yeah, I think uh, the, the two terms that he uses, rebuke and exhort, mm -hmm. are complementary. Because mm -hmm. uh, when you rebuke, it's like uh, when you see a house on fire, you don't just walk around casually. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> when you see a house on fire, mm -hmm. you shout for help. And then give their lives to save you, you know. That's the picture. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see a young person living in, I mean, not just a young person, but anybody living anyhow, you know very well that this kind of lifestyle, the person is going to perish. You don't, you don't go about it in a very light way. I'm sure every parent here, at times when you look at your child and then if it's going near electricity or something, you shout. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a kind of picture. And then, of course, there's the other side, exhortation. That's consolation. You are calm, you reason, and things like that. So you must have that balance as a Christian person. It's not just for a pastor, but you need that yeah. balance. You know? it, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, you know, to exhort is to really be, like we might say challenge, you know, where you're rebuking, you're telling somebody basically, you know, in no uncertain terms, you're wrong, right? But exhort is the other side of that where you actually say, here's the, Here's the challenge. Here's the. Uh, if you're a teacher and then you come to class and your children are rowdy, you don't just walk around casually and, hey, settle down. You, you, you try to you know, get them to calm down. And mm -hmm. I think you need that balance. Because if you don't, your children don't see you angry sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, if you lose your, I mean, your authority in the, in the classroom. So I think that we need that balance. It's sure. not like you are. Uh, what you were talking about. Sometimes preachers bully people in the, from the pulpit. I had a friend who said, I, I quit my church because I had a problem. And the pastor went to, to the pulpit and then spoke about it. And I knew he was talking to me. Mm -hmm. And from that time, she quit. Mm -hmm. Even though her husband is a decay in that church. She has stopped going to that church mm -hmm. because of that incident. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, to, yeah, take, I mean, the fair and balanced approach, as we've already talked about, you know, we want to be able to be firm in the truth, not compromise, but at the same time, do it with patience and teaching, gentleness, respect, right? Um, anything else, anybody? Go ahead, Aubrey. I was just saying, like, that rebuke and exhortation, like, the context of, like, correction, right? Like, rebuking mm -hmm. is calling out, this is wrong, mm -hmm. but we don't want to say stop it mm -hmm. and, like, leave them there, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, exhorting is, like, okay, here's what we need to be doing differently, mm -hmm. like, by that option with my young child, right? Absolutely. <laughs> it's right. not just don't do that. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, what am I supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Kathy. You think coming to the older church system, because not only is it um, learning in the mind, but it's learning this, the whole council of that and how to speak it. Um, if you don't get practice talking about it, then it's going to be hard to talk to someone who doesn't believe it. Mm -hmm. Um, but the more we can be like interacting in Sunday schools and in Bible studies and in prayer time with each other, it becomes more comfortable for us to be able yeah. to 
we get to those because it becomes more of us and more comfortable. We, we know the words, we mm-hmm. memorize scripture, we've read the Bible, um, we've prayed together, so that becomes a lot easier if you're doing it remotely. You don't get any. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's a host of other things that the scripture commands that I think are hard to do remotely. But you're you're absolutely correct. I think it was a couple of sermons ago, and uh, Pastor Tim talked about you know what we spend our time on uh, often shows where our passions lie, and that if you probably any of you who hold a full time job could c- come up here right now and give me a ten or fifteen minute synopsis um, as to what you do and what's important, what are some things to look out for. Right, because you're in, you're just ingrained in that every day, and you, you know it, right? And the same is true. I think that's what you're saying there, basically, right? You know, the more you become just ingrained in the fabric of good, sound teaching and doctrine, uh, the easier it's going to be come to you know regurgitate that to others. So you know, 100% agree with all of that. Um, I've kind of lost my lost my place here. What was I talking about? Just the idea that, that, that preaching is necessary um, for, for us to stay in the truth. You know, if we don't have sound teachers, where else are we going to go? Uh, then there's a command in, in chapter 4, verse 3. Um, I'm sorry, I'm on, on verse 5 now. Uh, As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Um, I don't think this is sobriety in, with respect to alcohol as we often think about it, although that could be included in this. I think this is a spiritual sober-mindedness. You know, again, we're not we're not going to be tossed to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. The sobriety carries with it this idea of being steadfast. You know, being anchored in something, not being emotionally riled up by the the slightest disturbance. Right? You be sober-minded. Remember, Paul has spent a good deal of his time here commanding Timothy not to chase these quarrelsome ideas, to not go down these rabbit trails of endless debate, but to bring people back to the main message of hope, right? And so with that, you know, a pastor ought to be sober-minded, not wild, not erratic, not um, contentious, you know, bipolar. That, that's not the, the characteristic of, of a leader. And so he's just reminding Timothy of that reality, that as the pastor, people are going to look to you. And so be sober-minded, be firm in your uh, beliefs and in your teaching and in your conduct. And then he says something here, which I think is, is really important. And again, because of the culture in which we live, we maybe don't see it as much, but certainly there's still persecution, pushback, criticism of pastors in our culture, right? Um, and so he says to endure suffering, uh, endure suffering. And I think this is important uh, because along with that being sober-minded, people are looking to you as the pastor. And if you retaliate in ways that are ungodly and unbiblical, um, you will be you will lose credibility, or if you compromise in ways that are unbiblical and ungodly, if if you are enduring suffering in the sense that the world is crashing or in around you and telling you you've got to preach uh, that same sex marriage is okay, and you cave, you'll you will lose credibility. Um, there's a real example of this in church history. Does anybody know what, about the Donatist controversy? Anybody familiar with the Donatist controversy? So late third century, two hundred, you know, two hundreds. Um, Diocletian was the emperor of Rome and ordered that the uh, Christians be persecuted. And um, one of the ways that it was found out as to whether or not you were Christian was to examine what type of literature, liturgy, books you had in your homes. Um, at that time, who was most likely to have any type of liturgy or books? It was the Christians, but more specifically, it was the clergy, right? I mean, not everybody had a Bible in their house like we do today. And so many of the clergy 
uh, compromised. Some didn't, some endured, some heeded this command, and they were martyred for their faith, but many others uh, gave their books up and said, go ahead, take them, burn them, uh, just spare our lives, right? A couple of decades later, maybe 15, 20 years later, Diocletian was no longer the emperor in Rome, and uh, and actually, I don't know if he was the next one or if there was maybe one in between, but Constantine becomes the emperor, right? And now all of a sudden, Christianity is not only accepted, it's proclaimed as the church, or the, the religion of the state. And many of those same people, individuals that had compromised and thrown away their books or been basically renounced the faith, came back and said, well, we shouldn't have done that. You know, that was wrong. Uh, we want to be reinstituted in the church. Now, there was a huge debate over that, and you can understand why. There was a man by the name of Donatus that basically said, can't do that. You know, you renounced it. Um, now, I'm not sure that he would have said that they can't be reinstated as a Christian, but certainly not as a leader, as a clergyman. And there were different views on this issue, and it lasted for a while. But the point is that that's a real example of where not enduring suffering uh, really caused great division and great friction within the church, right? Uh, to endure suffering is to bring glory to God. And when we fail to do so, we not only damage our own credibility, but we hinder the glory that he receives from us doing it. Um, and that one lasted for quite a while, right? So you can see the damage that was done there by those that refused to take this command seriously. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And as I've already stated, uh, I think it's that last clause there, or the second to last clause, where it says, do the work of an evangelist that we should uh, pay attention to, because even though we may not be pastors of local churches, we hopefully are all desiring to be evangelists. And so everything that Paul set up until this point should be characteristic of somebody who wishes to proclaim or herald or preach the good news to those uh, in their surrounding communities and networks. Uh, you, you probably know this, maybe you do, maybe you don't. The evangelist is just the gospel in a, um, what do I want to say? The word for gospel is euangelion. The word for evangelion is like, evangelist is like euangelionist. Like that's what we're talking about here, right? Somebody who tells the good news, tells the gospel to others. Um, and so again, I hope that it can be said of all of us here that we desire to be an evangelist, um, and that is how you will fulfill your ministry. So you do these things, basically, uh, fulfilling your ministry, as I've called it, the job description of a pastor. You're, you're fulfilling your job description, right? This is what you're to do. And if we're evangelists, uh, we, we can say much of the same. So uh, I have more to go on verse, I guess we'll just go into it. Maybe we can go through it. Um, it's kind of an odd place to stop, but I've got five minutes. So. Uh, verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Talked about this, but Paul's, you know, basically saying to Timothy, uh, "You're going to be the man of the house now, right? I mean, I'm I'm not going to be here much longer, and uh, I'm going to pass the mantle." He recognizes that, but then look at what Paul says uh, after this: "I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is a laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing." Um, there's a very, I think, critical. Christian doctrine that we can recognize Paul is is uh, providing evidence for here. Does anybody want to take a stab at, at what I might be thinking? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, so we have those who would question the idea that I can ever be assured of my salvation, right? Um, whatever the argument against that idea might be, they would also have to contend with the reality that Paul certainly seems sure of his salvation, right? All certainly seem to be certain that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord, right? For I am, or I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord. And so this can be, I think, a wonderful reminder to all of us that 
Uh, and then he says, well, and he even goes as far as to say that all of us who have loved the Lord's appearing, and that is worded strangely, but I, from study on that, I believe that's talking about the second coming of Christ. So even though we may not see that second coming, uh, we long for it or we love it in that respect that we, we look forward to it. I, I believe that's what it's talking about. Uh, that's not how I would have read it, but when I, when I was studying on the commentary, that seemed to be the implication that it's the same kind of terminology that he uses up in verse 1, right? When he says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. By his appearing in his kingdom, a reference to the judgment, the second coming. Um, I think the same idea at place here. So those of us who are not opposed to God, but actually love him and look forward to his coming, can have the same certainty and the same assurance of our own crown of righteousness that is laid up for us in heaven. Um, I think that's a wonderful reminder and promise in the midst of our daily struggles that you know Paul had great assurance. And remember, Paul, we, we herald him because of his work as the writer of Scripture, but he was not such a, a do-gooder before his time as a Christian, right? So if he can be assured of his salvation, um, we all can have that through the righteousness that is in Christ. And so we talked about exhortation today, and, and sometimes I do a poor job of this because I do just sit here and talk about what the text says and never really... Uh, remember to tell you what the good news is. And so here's the deal. If you do look at all this and you say, wait a minute, uh, I haven't lived up to it, or uh, I have been reproved or rebuked, but now what? You know, the reality is that we can have righteousness in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul puts his hope in here in these last verses where he says that his crown of righteousness is with the Lord. He's talking about the righteousness that he obtains, not from himself, not from his own good, good works or goodness, but from Christ himself. And so we have that uh, same option or same opportunity afforded to us to you know renounce our good works and our efforts and to put our faith in Christ and have confidence that when we leave this earth, when it is our time, uh, we will be with him celebrating um, after we fought the good fight. That's the gospel message through Christ, right? Um, it's 1030 here, really close. Uh, does anybody have any thoughts or questions before I, uh, before I dismiss this or any, any last one? one? Thing I missed real quick. That last between six and eight, he's finished the race, kept the faith, um, finished finished the good fight. Of, yeah, finished good fight. These are all he said. These he's used these examples. Mm -hmm. you know, they're very athletic examples in other scripture. Mm -hmm. And like he's gaining crown of righteousness in Second Thessalonians. Mm -hmm. He's tying all this in, like you said. This is this is his magnus opus. He's Tying everything up. This is my last note to you, Timothy. Mm -hmm. Take hold of everything I'm saying because this is my last chance to say something. Yep. Yep. And you know, I mean, I don't know. I, maybe it's totally just in my head, but I almost get the impression that Paul's probably a little bit excited as he's writing this, mm -hmm. right? That uh, he's almost done because his life has not been exactly something to envy in the in the recent years, writing leading up to this, right? Um, so let's have that same joy, you know, that joy in death. We t I, I actually was, you had mentioned last week the prayer request for uh, Eva. You know that how she kind of taught us how to die. I think was what you said last week, right? And, uh, as I was reading that section, preparing for this week, that that came to my mind again. That you know, Paul is probably kind of uh, like we saw our sister Eva Walker in her last days. You know, she wasn't at all um, despaired, but was pretty encouraged by the fact that you know she only had a little bit left to go, and then she was done. So, anything else? Go ahead, Jay. See how Paul is sure to warn Timothy of what is to come in his ministry. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, and in promise, I think that's a mm -hmm. way of encouraging him. You like to kind of think of yourself in Timothy's shoes as you're reading all this, yeah. talking about enduring suffering, 
was that was a guy like Christ who uh, will be persecuted and how much attention he's going to endure, you know, throughout his ministry would kind of be pretty discouraging. But then you end with this um, that there's a crown of righteousness awaiting you for those who endure. So that would be kind of cool. So. Yeah, and the suffering that we endure is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, right? That, that idea. But it's easier said than done. So let's, that's, that's why the local church is important. We encourage each other, bear one another's burdens. It's hard to do that online. So we pray that you come back and continue to uh, learn together and grow together. Let me end this, end this in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the gift that pastors, elders, teachers are uh, to your church. And we pray for our own pastor that he would be um, moved to take seriously the charges that you've given through your uh, through your word, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, uh, but to do it with gentleness, to do it with teaching, uh, to do it as a kind and loving shepherd, as we know you are to all of your sheep. Uh, we pray that we could uh, appreciate that gift more and more, um, and that we would desire as evangelists to fulfill our own responsibilities in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, um, that we would not be like those people who uh, accumulate teachers who will just suit their own appetites, that we would um, recognize our own sinfulness and our need for uh, reproof and rebuke and correction, uh, and then that we would rejoice in the coming of our Lord and that uh, uh, in the day when our race is finished, uh, we can stand before you justified because of the righteousness of Christ. We praise you for that in your name. Amen. Amen.